Thanks for listening to the Benefits Breakdown. Stay tuned until the end of our next episode titled Myths and Misconceptions Part 2, Funding Methods to Receive a Code for Your Sherm Credit. Unfortunately, we had some issues with our audio for this episode. Our guest has a lot of valuable insights, so please stick with us through the technical difficulty. Once again, thanks again for listening and enjoy the episode. Hello, hello. Yet another episode of the Benefits Breakdown here with Vanessa Longnecker and my co-hosts. Hey, Jared Bocut here with you. Hey, everybody. Adam Compton. Excited to uh, get into some fun today. We are here with our guest of honor, David Ross. Dave, say hello. Hey, everybody. Delighted to be here. I've heard such great things about this podcast. Changing the world one piece of benefit information at the time, right, sir? <laughs> hey, it is insurance after all. Nothing's more exciting than this topic. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. Well, we are excited to have Dave here with us today to break down many in a series of myths and misconceptions. We led our podcast episode series with a report on the business group on health and top 10 charts trends for employers. Amongst that was a significant trend moving away from high deductible health plans. Dave, can you tell us a little bit about what you're hearing and why we may find this interesting? (laughs) Hold on. Before Dave gives his answer, I give a caveat with every time I bring Dave in to meet with somebody that we're not responsible to any HR violations that Dave may bring up (laughs) during our conversation. So with that disclaimer of Dave being our special guest, we need to give that. That's a fair warning. I think that's a very fair warning. Yeah. (laughs) I'll go with it. Well, I mean, so let me just give, I guess I'll, (laughs) thank you for inviting me on the show, incidentally. Um, And you guys have been very kind so far because, you know, at least you've been calling me Dave Ross. Usually I'm referred to as a Hayes, Brown and Brown's over-caffeinated numbers monkey. Um, And so Dave Ross is quite kind of you. Thank you very much. Um, Let me just, I'll give you a little bit of my background and then I I guess maybe that might be more prudent to, to answering the question. What do I know about high deductible health plans? So at Brown and Brown Hayes, I head up the actuarial and underwriting department. Um, although don't fool yourself, that, that doesn't mean I actually do any underwriting or actuarial services because that it's mathematics, which hasn't changed in forever. Uh, and so it's really a figurehead position. I help oversee the department, kind of um, provide direction and uh, help maintain tools and such. But I mean, it takes care of itself. Instead, what I spend all of my time doing is traveling the country speaking. So this is this is um, this is a it's a new format for me, but it's really not that dissimilar from what I do all the time. Uh, the reason I'm asked to do speaking, sometimes even in front of legislative entities, is because of what I did prior to my role at Hayes Brown and Brown. I'm I'm very clear about it. I I was a underwriting strategist for Blue Cross Blue Shield. As an underwriter strategist, my job is to effectively do the opposite of what I presume your listeners are tuning in for. <laughs> if we if we assume that your listeners are planned fiduciaries, HR people, C-suite people that care about cost and quality of health care, then my statement was correct. It's to do the opposite of them. An employer's cost in health care is, is my revenue if I'm at Blues. And so Let's not pick on blues for a second. Let's pick on the other three nemesi. I just made up that word, by the way. It's it's plural for nemesis. <laughs> it uh, I don't know if that one would work. May, by the way, what is the plural of nemesis? Maybe it is nemesi. I don't even know. Anyways, 
my the three biggest players at, when I was at Blue Cross that we had to contend with, of course, was United Cigna and Aetna. And I have to remind people as I go around the country that all three of those entities report to Wall Street. They they have a legal fiduciary obligation to do what's right for their shareholders, not what's right for your health plan. Um, and that's sometimes an eye opener for folks because we you know we look at we look at the industry including my carrier partner, Blues United Signa Aetna, or pick your local regional TPA or HMO. We look at those we look at those as partnerships. And we're like, well, I get my information in part from my carrier on how to fix this problem called healthcare. And in a very evil way that makes people like myself laugh because that's one of my tools to make sure that I influence how you make your decisions such that I achieve my outcomes to raise cost and to raise medical trend. So one of my unique um, pieces of background is that the very, I'm out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. That's where I'm coming to you from right now. The very first consumer directed health plan sold in this entire country was sold to a healthcare facility about 15 miles from where I'm sitting right now. And I was on the team that put that into place. And then I spent the next two years helping Blue Cross's lobbying efforts uh, in Washington to try to try to get HSA laws signed in. So, um, and they were designed in in December of 2003 with the Medicare Modernization Act. So I actually have some very unique experience in terms of how and why we, the industry, started shoveling high deductible health plans down your throat. Uh, and then, so that's that's our buildup. Now, I guess go back to the question. The question that you posed to me is, what are my thoughts on on high deductibles and why um, why that that statistic that you went through in your in a, your first podcast? Why that exists? Why uh, was it 10 percent? of employers are looking at, I don't know, I don't, whatever the number was, that some material it's amount one of the top 10 re, or one of the top 10 focuses of 2021 is employers moving away from high deductible healthcare plans. That's it. One of the top 10. The reason why that's the case is because um, I guess the game is up, so to speak. I mean, what, what we were trying to do is, I'll speak to it very generically. There were 17 different reasons that I know of that we started to push consumer-directed high-deductible health plans. And all 17 of them are to the detriment of either the employer-sponsored health plan and or the employee, all of them. Uh, and so we can. I, I think that what you're going to probably ask me to talk about today and maybe what we'll go back and forth on is what some of those variables are. What is it that we were targeting? What is it that, that your listeners can think about as they think about their consumer-directed plans? And I'm guessing that at the end of this discussion, people are going to be thinking a little bit differently about their plan. I, w- I will say this, and you guys, by the way, you guys all know that I'm a talker. I've, I've worked with, the, with all of the um, hosts and hostesses on this, uh, on this podcast before many, many times we worked together. And um, they all know me. I'm a huge tangent taker. So reel me back at any point, please. But I do think it's prudent to say that what we'll probably represent on this call, I'm guessing, is two different sides of the coin. At least I hope so. I actually have, I know this isn't a video podcast, but I do literally have a visor on my hat right now. It says finance. And um, if you're a person that's seen me a presenter on the country, you know that <clears throat> I never go anywhere without my uh, 12 visors. One says finance, the other say recruitment, retention, corporate culture, community, politics, ownership, unions, risk, behavior. None of my hats say right or wrong. Not one of them. That would be very, very arrogant and downright ignorant of me to suggest that I know what's right or wrong for, for an organization. The only thing I'm ever speaking to is dollars. 
And so even when we have this, this high deductible health plan discussion or whatever else we go into um, in the rest of this podcast or podcasts to come, I will exclusively be speaking from the dollar's perspective. Now, does that make it the right decision? I'm guessing that the other three quarters of the people <laughs> running this podcast are going to make sure to jump in and say, well, okay, here's what Dave's saying about finance. Now let's talk about the other side of the equation. So hold me to that, folks. Don't let me get away with absolutely shutting down something simply because it doesn't make sense financially. The finance aspect of the HDHP is where it, where it began, right? Let's pay premium. Let's shift risk. And all of a sudden, wow, we've got less premium, right? That was a big driver for employers. And even maybe the HR side at the time was saying, well, I can give my employees the choice or the the consumerism methodology. And, I, you know, are you... That's the baseline, but now we've grown yeah. past that, it seems. So focusing on the finance aspect, in California, I know where we're, we're sitting right now, uh, at least where I'm sitting, you're lovely 2,000 yeah. miles away um, in Minnesota, but we saw trend levels in the HDHP plans even go higher than the PPO plans. So in theory, it was going to save more premium, but the trends were, were higher. And I'm, I'm guessing you're seeing that around the country. It t- t- we're seeing the more. same thing here as well. And I think, Adam, to what you, where you were going, I think it's a good place to start is let's talk about maybe why consumer-driven healthcare plans were initially pushed to the marketplace, or at least the how or why they were pushed from the industry as far as how they would benefit employers. The reasons that originally, and I think are still out there, we like to call it maybe some of the myths of why they were pushed, Dave. I know you've heard, called them that historically, but what were some of those reasons, Dave, that... Um, they they were sold or how are they sold to the to the marketplace i've never been accused of having too much tact <laughs> and so uh, so i do in many cases i i choose i know it's shocking right i do choose um and I, i'll be, i use that word properly i choose some um antagonistic word and and words and phrasing and so you know you talk about it as myths i talk about it as bamboozlement and and i'm i'm choosing that word carefully but i mean it's it's um I think it's applicable. Our, one of the components of being an underwriter strategist is an element of behavioralism. So it's behavioralists with mathematical competencies. That's what differentiates the strategist from, say, just the underwriter or the actuary. Uh, and so if, if, if I'm going to go down the behavior path, what I care about as the strategist is I care about impacting your behavior, you listening as, as planned fiduciaries, because you decide what carrier, the number of plans, the number of tiers, the disease management, case management, the wellness, that you dictate the experience for your hundreds, if not thousands of employees. So I really care about influencing your decision making. And as a behavioralist strategist, what we have to do is come up with a good story. And so the the first component of the high deductible becoming successful was that story. We better have a good story or or you're not going to buy into it. That's how we've been learning for tens of thousands of years, by the way. We learned through stuff. Before we had schools and such, how did you teach your people in a cave? Well, your Uncle Mike isn't with us anymore. He rolled into a fire a few years ago. Fire is hot. You die from it. Stay away from it. Okay, storytelling works great. So what's the story around high deductible health plans? Folks were caught in a broken marketplace. People don't evaluate the relationship between the cost and quality of healthcare. So here's a here's a here's a solution coming to you from your friend, the industry. Hope you detect the sarcasm in that. How about we raise deductibles materially, in fact? Give people some money in the form of an HRA or an HSA, but forget about that money. 
the fact that we've raised the deductible means that we've put more skin into the game for the consumer. The consumer at that point should want to be a better consumer of healthcare. The word that we supplement for consumer at that point is a better utilizer of healthcare. I'll say it again. Raise a deductible, more skin in the game for the consumer, give the consumer some tools around how to be a better consumer of healthcare, and they should want to be a better utilizer of healthcare. What's a classic example of what was used in the early days to substantiate that story and what is still used today to substantiate that story? It's the MRI example. We all know that an MRI five miles to the west might be $5,000 and an MRI five miles to the east might be $500. If it's my money, I should care about that. That makes sense. It makes absolute sense. We have a problem, though, and the, the problem is the Pareto principle. A lot of us have been saying for far too long that 80% of the cost of healthcare is incurred by 20% of the people. That's just not true anymore. It is very correct that the vast majority of the cost of healthcare comes from a surprisingly small population, but it's not a 20. It's now solidly a 90-10. 90% of cost coming from 10% of people, approximate. And what you can tie that population to in terms of plan design is the maximum out of pocket. So basically 10-ish percent of the population, any employer population, 10-ish, is going to exceed the maximum out of pocket in whatever plan that they're in. That population is going to account for close to 90% of cost. Boom. We have a problem a problem that fundamentally conflicts with the storyline that 320 million Americans have bought into, the idea that consumer is going to, is going to re re reduce cost. Here's a question I'll phrase to any of you. Usually it's a rhetorical question, but you guys, and you guys all have heard these before, but you know, just play along as if it's the first time you've heard it. If I have a $50 deductible, is that deductible above or below the maximum out of pocket in that plan? Jared? I actually know the answer to this one. It's below. Okay. It is below. That is below. Okay, Adam, you're up next. If I have a $500 deductible, is that deductible above or below the maximum out of pocket in that plan? Does it matter what day of the week it is? Or, or is it, it, is it Tuesday? It does. It, it can, well, it, it has to be either Monday, Tuesday, <laughs> Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. As long as it's one of those. Then the answer, just like Jared, would be below. 100% It is below. below. Okay, last one. Not a impressive, Adam. Very impressive. <laughs> Going to our person that keeps it classy. The next was this one's for you. Okay, so if I have a five thousand dollar deductible health plan, five thousand dollars is that above or below the maximum? No way. She's getting this one right. No way. <laughs> I guess that depends on what the out of pocket max is, but it should absolutely be identical to or below. Yeah. The point being, of course, that it, there is no copay, there's no deductible, there's no coinsurance amount on the planet. There is no element of plan design that exceeds the maximum out of pocket. If it did, we should call it the nearly maximum out of pocket or something like that. It is the maximum out of pocket. We have a problem. 100% of plan design is by definition below the maximum out of pocket. But as we just talked about, 90% of cost from roughly 10% of people comes from above it. That's the piece that your listeners need to let sink in. What relevance does plan design have 
on mitigating cost and curbing trend when that very basic measurable reality exists. It is statistically and actuarially immaterial. So the whole notion of, of the story that 300 plus million Americans have bought into that high deductible health plans are going to improve utilization, it, it, it's a fundamentally flawed theory and we can explore it further. If you take that 90% of cost, 10% of people, I'm going to quickly give you the top seven conditions. Number one is cancer. Number two is hemophiliacs. Pregnancy is driven by premature births. Number three, heart disease. Number four, um, what do I have? Transplants. Number six and lead, uh, number five, leading up to anything leading up to it, like end-stage renal disease, dialysis, that kind of stuff. And then rounding out is multiple sclerosis in the number six position and congenital deformities in the number seven. What is true about 100% of those people? Every one of those people knows with absolute certainty what they are going to pay for health care, regardless of where they go. If I have cancer and I go to Mayo, debatably one of the best healthcare facilities in the world, and I've, I'm sitting in a plan with a $4,000 maximum out of pocket, what am I guaranteed to pay out of my pocket? Jared? I know this $4,000. The answer is $4,000 on any day of the week. Now, if I go to, if I go to Adam's hospital, a lot of people don't realize this um, because Adam really kind of prides himself as a, as a healthcare consultant. Wait, wait, that's his passion. His passion is not his hospital, but he does actually have one. Not many people know that. He's the first one to admit that it is a dump of yeah. a hospital. I mean, it is a real dump. In fact, I, I went there once. It was nice of you to take me there. We had to avoid the blood <laughs> the drop. Tour. The tuna sandwich it was, was great. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, a little bit of the, uh, you know, there was there was something a little tangy in that tuna sandwich that I was worried about, but it's all right. Did you like the syringes that were laid across the ground? And uh, I did. I almost okay. tripped on one. I, right. I particularly liked the, the sign on the front door that says, we reuse syringes and band-aids. <laughs> and, <laughs> so can remember now i have cancer i have cancer so if i and that's not a funny topic literally it's not we're having fun with a different part of this but not the cancer cancer is not fun if i have cancer and i go to mayo i pay four thousand dollars if i have cancer and i go to adam's horrible hospital what do i also pay the same four thousand dollars yeah so help me understand something what kind of utilization improvement are you going to get from the person that drives 90 percent of cost and the answer is not even none what you're going to get is anti-utilization. Take myself. I was a lifeguard for eight years. Literally, that's, that's a true story. And this is back in the 80s. What haven't you done, Dave? <laughs> I mean, people, some of these listeners will remember. They're got to be up. I'm 49, about to turn 50, right? So back in my day of lifeguarding, there was no such thing as SPF 50. Are you kidding me? We would put on baby oil. You know, just like smear it all over yourself and Vaseline if you ran out of baby oil. I mean, I have skin cancer in my future and Mayo's an hour from my house and I have a fixed maximum out of pocket when it's my turn and I have cancer where am I going to take my cancer I'm going to Mayo I you will never see me walk into Adam's front door of his hospital I only care about the quality of it because my price is fixed so regardless I, of my 50 or 500 or five thousand dollar deductible my destination's in, in writing. I know where I'm going if I'm a high cost utilizer. Always. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the entire concept of, of consumer directed falls flat on its face when you kind of evaluate it from this very simplistic perspective. 90% of cost, 10% of people, 
all of those people have conditions that are going to make them pay the max amount of pocket, regardless of where they go. And so you will never get favorable utilization from that population. By the way, you will get favorable, favorable utilization from the, from the 10% of people, or sorry, from, excuse me, from the 90% of people that drive 10% of cost. Those are the people that are going to have the experiences that we used with like the MRI. And we'll talk about it in terms of like colonoscopies and various other things. But every single example, every example provided to you by your friend, the industry. What was true about every one of those examples? Think about it carefully and realize that all of those examples were always below the max amount of pocket. Even in my MRI example, 5000 bucks versus $500, that's a $4,500 difference. Is there any plan on the planet? where, where $4,500 is going to hit the maximum amount of pocket when there's coinsurance involved. Not likely, not likely at all. Dave, the other part of that equation is we're expecting members of our healthcare plans to be consumers. Let's say that 90% that's under the max out of pocket, right? So those people that are really there, we're expecting them to be better consumers, to go out and shop for healthcare, to find better cost providers. I recently read a statistic that talked about less than 13% of Americans understand how to navigate the healthcare system in the U.S. So we're expecting very, very few people. And I would challenge that some of those 13% of those large claimants, myself being one of them, we're expecting a very small percentage of the population to be able to navigate the healthcare system, to go out and shop for something that they don't even understand. Yeah, that's a fair point. And even if they do understand it, you still have problems around the accuracy of the pricing. I mean, here's, think about this. I actually had fun with this. So it, it, it Blue Cross, you might imagine, I, actually all of the carriers, if you go and look at their own health plans, given what we're going to be talking about today and what I've already laid the foundation for, it's like, okay, high deductible health plans aren't great financially speaking. We haven't even got into that yet. But if that's true, then clearly Blue's United Cigna Aetna, they don't offer high deductible health plans to their own employees, do they? Yes, they do. Absolutely, they do. Because they're not insane. You, you better practice what you preach or, or, or you, you got a problem. I mean, like, for example, I had LASIK surgery and it, it was botched. I mean, literally a, a double vision to this day. There's a little bit of my own PHI. And curiously, when I thought about this in, in sort of when I reflected upon it, I should have been curious when my LASIK doctor had like Coke bottle glasses on. Why, why don't you do this surgery? <laughs> You know, you better practice what you preach. Um, and so on. It, so I had some fun with this because Blue Cross, the year that we put out that first high deductible health plan, the very next year we put in our own HRA high deductible health plan and I joined it. I was much younger then. You know, they say it's for the young and the rich. And uh, I was young and I joined it and I was going to have some fun with this as a player in the arena that I just helped set up. And so it was I was assigned to the task by myself to to do what we were supposed to do to be a better consumer of healthcare. So when I went in for a basic visit at some point, I don't know who I was talking to. I'll just start making up names of classic people you see in doctor's offices. There's always an Ethel and there's a Hazel and, uh, you know, they're like old school stuff here. So I, I asked Ethel, who was the person as I'm checking out, I'm like, okay, so what is this going to cost me? And of course, <laughs> what does Ethel say? How the heck should I know? I, what do you mean? How, what's what going to cost? It's going to cost you your copay. 
No, no, I'm sorry, Ethel. I'm in one of these new fancy pants, high deductible health plans. It's going to be entirely my responsibility. So I need to just know what is going to be the cost of my cut. She doesn't know. So she sends me down to Hazel down in, in billing. And Hazel is like, what's your copay? Well, I'm in one of these fancy pants, high deductible health plans. It's going to be entirely my responsibility. Now think about this. Even if Hazel could answer, well, she can't. How, how would Hazel know how to answer that question? I'm with Blues. Do you think Blues has the exact same contracted rate as United? Of course not. Do you think United has the same contracted rate as Aetna or Cigna? She would need to know who I'm with, first of all, and then she would need to know a proprietary number, a contractually protected number, and then she would need to reveal that to me in a way that she's not allowed to do. I mean, there's just no easy way for the consumer to ever actually be informed on the price tag of it. I think that makes such a great point because there's so many transparency tools in the marketplace, but little do many realize they're not accounting for precisely what you just referred to, right? Contracting discrepancies between whomever you are contracted with. Yeah, they're averages. And so those most of those pricing numbers you get are averages. They're, there's no specificity around it actually being what you're going to pay. And that becomes a frustrating thing. By the way, interestingly, let me throw another variable while we're talking about it. I don't want to go too far from this because let's have a fun one with this. If we want to evaluate the cost to an employer associated with a high deductible health plan, here's a really small one and frustrating, but it is a cost. And frustratingly, it's an immeasurable one. Good luck measuring this, but, but we can look at all kinds of survey data. You want your consumers to be better or your employees to be better consumers of healthcare, even when they are, even that 13% that Jared is talking about that do actually engage in becoming better consumers of healthcare. Guess when they do it. Do you think they're doing it at home on their own free time? Or do you think they're doing it at work? where you lose productivity. So there's, there's a, there is an immeasurable productivity loss to an employer associated with asking employees to do exactly what we're asking them to do. That's just one mild variable. So, you know, Dave, probably Mike, like me, you're probably a big country fan. I'm a big Luke Bryan fan. Bring my oh, Wisconsin yeah. roots out to California when my, my wife lured me out here. So I keep that I keep it real. And one of his songs was uh, most people are good. So I'm like, wait, no, this can't be all bad. There's got to be a reason why these plans are benefiting and or the, the, the market would say they're just not functional. And so I'm flipping kind of into maybe a, a, a myopic point of it. Like, who is this good for? And, and is it good? And potentially are we saying, well, that good, although good for that small segment doesn't meet my broader needs for the population? Or maybe what are some of the positives when you work backwards into that? Yeah, I mean, that might be an opportunity to tap into the three of you even to talk about some of the positives of it. Certainly, you know, I work with employers that do have high deductible health plans in place, even though I have, you know, I have plenty more variables that I'm sure we're going to jump into that all are, you know, pretty negative towards high deductible health plans. By the way, incidentally, um, Tim McGraw did a uh, did a concert. Um, on the lake, not too far from where I am. And like a whole, like 14,000 people showed up and everybody in Minnesota has a boat, everybody. So I'm out there with a bunch of friends on the boat. And what did all of our banners say? <laughs> they all say something to the effect of, we love you, Garth Brooks. 
<laughs> Even though it was Tim McGraw, we keep on holding up Kenny Chesney, you rock, right? And uh, so yeah, Dave's code name is not AK Big Country. That's not. Words. Yeah, <laughs> it's not yeah, we had some real fun with it. <laughs> um, that's classic. So I mean, it's there's that's a tricky question to answer. I mean, so is there? Can there be a reason why employers want to have that? Yes, yeah, certainly. One of the one of the qualitative, not quantitative, variables associated with employers offering um, healthcare is simply being able to offer choice. Sure. Choice is a qualitative variable, uh, and so you know the question becomes: How do you measure what the cost of choice is? That's a, that's actually a remarkably simple thing to measure, but something that the marketplace does a really deplorable job of measuring. In fact, the majority of what the marketplace is going to show, when I say the marketplace, I mean brokers, consultants, actuaries, underwriters, and the like, they're going to show an environment where if you migrate people towards higher deductible, lower cost plans, it's going to lower cost. And um, that's, that's, that can't be true. That's an absolute fallacy. And the reason why that can't be true, if I'm just to make it very simple, is that who are the people that are going to go into a high deductible health plan in the first place? Let me ask it this way. If you offer a very rich plan and you offer a less rich high deductible plan next to it, which of those two plans would 100% of employers price less? And the answer is obviously the high deductible health plan. The moment it is $1 less, you will guarantee yourself that every single 21-year-old male eligible for coverage is going to choose it. By the way, I don't know. Um, Vanessa's also here in Minnesota. You probably do you remember the place at the University of Minnesota, Vanessa. It was called the uh, what was it called the library. The oh, li- yeah. it, because when you, you went to study, your, yeah, you could tell your parents I'm going to the library. <laughs> it was the name of a bar, and on Thursday nights you could get a beer for a quarter. And so, so a, a quarter. So imagine if if you charge that eight, if you that high deductible health plan is one dollar less. That's four beers. If I'm a 21-year-old male. Now, what is a 21-year-old male going to cost a health plan? Nothing. Literally zero. <laughs> yeah, literally, for the, if we talk about averages, the average is going to be essentially zero. And so you will have the absolute healthiest of your entire population voluntarily choose that plan. That sets the price tag for that plan. The price tag is, a remember, plan design has nothing to do with cost. We just talked about that. If plan design has nothing to do with cost, then why do I have such a disparity in price tags between rich plans and less rich plans? It's because of who chooses it. That's what the underwriter knows better than anybody. It's not a function of the plan design. It's a function of who is in it. So if I have nothing but young 20-year-olds in an HSA, that sets the price tag for that HSA very low. We've immediately set ourselves up for a furious financial problem. When we see that high deductible health plan priced so low relative to the rich plan, we are encouraged through benchmarking, industry motives, and common sense, we're encouraged to price the contributions such that people want to migrate down into that high deductible health plan. And we we can do it one of two ways. We either lower the contribution or we fund the HSA. Either way is, is a net reduction in the contribution. Now, here's our problem. The price tag was a function of nothing but the healthiest population. The only population left to move into that high deductible health plan is by definition less healthy than the population that was already there. Mm 
So if I have a price tag, a fixed price tag, it's sitting there on your broker or consultant spreadsheet. It doesn't change. That number doesn't change on your spreadsheet, but it should. Because the moment that you move a less healthy plan into that high deductible health plan, what immediately becomes true about that number that doesn't change on your spreadsheet, it goes up. So you end up underfunding the plan. You end up charging contributions that are too low. They're off of a number that's too low. You charge COBRA premiums that are too low. You're going to get a huge increase in that plan, all because you did something voluntary. You knowingly sent people to a place that you thought was going to lower cost. It dramatically increases it. Now, Dave, I hear what you're saying, but clearly that's offset on the rich plan. Wrong. (laughs) The rich plan's price tag is defined by everybody that was in the rich plan. That was everybody except the 20-year-olds. Now, remember, when the next healthiest population leaves, that's not the 60-year-olds or the 50 or the 40. It's the 30-year-olds who will be the next to leave, depending on what you do. When those 30-year-olds leave the the rich plan, what happens? Those are the healthiest of the rich plan. When they leave to go to the high deductible health plan, what is wrong with the funding number in the rich plan? It is also too low. low. You're you're underfunded, under-contributioned, under-COBRA premiumed. You're going to get a huge renewal increase all because you did something that made sense. It is a lower price tag. Therefore, let's encourage people to go there. And when you do that, your common sense failed you. You dramatically increase the cost in all plans by doing that. So there's a challenge. I'm actually surprised I can remember your question and get back to it because usually my tangents take me in a completely wrong direction. So that tangent explains the challenge of of the qualitative reason why an employer might want to offer health care or might want to offer more than one plan Mm -hmm. choice. Um, I'll just as an example, and I'm sure you want to go in a different direction. I actually worked on a very large employer once. It was, um, they're still a client of ours. I think they're about 8,000 employees and they're, they're publicly traded and they're in a very, very small town where they make up the vast majority of the town. So here's the relevance of that. Um, when working with them, we showed them that offering four of everything, because that's what they did, four, four health plans, four dental, literally four disability options four of everything because they were the only player in town and they wanted to be able to allow their people to choose. So we show them this dilemma that I just explained. We quantify it for them and show them that it's a $6.2 million cost, a $6.2 million inefficiency associated with having four plans. And the, the board said, we have a problem. I arrogantly said, yes, I know it's a $6.2 million problem, but shame on me. That was not their problem. That was not their problem at all. Their problem is that they're a family-friendly, paternalistic organization that exists in a very, very small community that they care about. So they have a fiduciary obligation to Wall Street. They have a fiduciary obligation to their health plan. And they've assigned themselves a community responsibility. That is, that is between, You're stuck between a rock and three hard places there. And so what did they do? They said, we are family-friendly 
paternalistic and, and community focused, but not to the tune of $6.2 million. And so what we do to this day is we knowingly subsidize the high deductible health plan to the tune of $2 million. And for them, that is the perfect decision because they made it knowingly. David, I recently read a study from the Kaiser Foundation, your neighbors out there, Adam. Yeah. And it, it talked about something that the, the country started to see the last handful of years, uh, a phrase called delay of care. Yeah. And something that I think we need to talk about and maybe a direction we can go for the next few minutes. Uh, and I know we've had conversations about this in the past, but what is delay of care and why are we starting to see that trend happen in the country since high deductibles have started to come into place? Yeah, it's um, not surprisingly, it's the, the people that are lead the charge on almost any change in healthcare, are always very, very large employers. Uh, and the reason why that's typically the case, so like, for example, JP Morgan Chase is out there talking about how they're dumping their high deductible health plans or restructuring without them. Um, CVS Caremark, same thing. Um, there's a, there's a bunch of them. There's a bunch of them that are kind of moving down that path now. The advantage that very large employers have is statistical credibility in their data. Um, it's, it's an enormous advantage. And so if you're a smaller employer, it's very difficult to identify based off of your own experience, fundamental differences or changes in utilization, because you have no way of knowing whether or not those one or two or three different people occurrences is indicative of a trend or if it's just random variance. You have to be you have to get to very large numbers to be able to do that, or you need to be looking at large epidemiological databases. By the way, Adam, epidemiology did get me two hundred and forty two points on words before. Very strong. Nice job. Yeah, it, it was a tough one. It <laughs> Big was a tough words. One. Big yeah. Words. I'll, I'll never words. play that game with you, Dave. <laughs> yeah. I usually I usually am terrible. I lose all the time, but that one was I I, I was really proud of that. That's why I bring it up all the time. So, um, so the, the larger employers have the advantage of looking at very large numbers and what, what was theorized all the way back in the early two thousands was exactly what behavioral strategists, underwriting strategists and actuaries like myself, exactly what we expected to occur. I'm going to say something here that really infuriates some people. And I want to, I want to preface this by saying, listen, Blues United Cigna Aetna, providers, networks, pharmaceutical companies. It's like, we're not evil. We're businesses. We're businesses. And so we're, we're trying to go after what all businesses look at and go after to increase revenues, increase profits. There's a phrase that's been used to describe in some cases what behavioral underwriting strategists and people like myself have done, and that was to manufacture sickness. If I can and I know that's an antagonistic phrase again, but if I can create more sickness, I'm going to have more adjudications of care. And my, my profit is called per adjudication unit profit. Every time I adjudicate a claim, I attach a piece of profit. I want to adjudicate more claims. That is far easier to do off of larger populations and sicker populations. And so anything we can do to motivate um, a population to become sicker is yes, philosophically mean, but it actually satisfies exactly what our financial intent is. And, and that's what we anticipated off of our large epidemiological databases. What large employers have started to see in the last um, eight years is they have enough of their own data to actually recognize what's happening. And so with the delayed care, what it shows us is simply that it, as, as it suggests, 
that when you raise a deductible furiously and a person does not know what they are on the hook for, they tend to not go in uh, for, for anything. Uh, they certainly don't want to go to the emergency room, but even before that, they don't want to go into the most basic of office visits. And so one of the things we've measured, I'll just give you a quick example and then we can move on, is with one of the groups that I've worked on, 22,000 employee company, that's large enough to have statistical credibility and the case study could not be any more perfect because they went from having one rich PPO plan to the very next year, a high deductible HSA. They bought hook, line, and sinker into the into the high deductible revolution. So you can't ask for a better case study. So let me just give you one example. This is ICD-9 days, not ICD-10. It was 486.1, which is uh, bacterial pneumonia. There were 90-some occurrences in the office setting. What Times whatever price tag that was. There were 13 visits in the emergency room setting. This is where the diagnosis was bacterial pneumonia. And there were none in the inpatient. Uh, the total price tag for that was about $16,000 paid by the plan for a diagnosis of bacterial pneumonia. But now move to a high deductible health plan. What should you immediately expect to occur behaviorally when it comes to people that have a cough? That's how bacterial pneumonia starts. It is only dangerous for the very young, the very old, or the immunodeficient. So of those 90 some, include the ER, of those hundred and some odd people, only a small fraction was it going to be dangerous for. For the majority of those people, it was just going to go away on their own. What happened to that 90 plus people that were in the office setting? They didn't go. That 90 dropped down to two that were diagnosed with bacterial pneumonia in the office setting. The 13, some people waited a little too long and they had to go to the emergency room. The 13 dropped down to eight. However, when they didn't go to the office, they really didn't want to go to the emergency room because that's going to cost hundreds and hundreds. And so they waited and they waited and they waited. And by the time they go to the emergency room, the hospital care system says, don't worry, you're not going to die. But we cannot fix this with oral antibiotics. We have to put you into the inpatient setting and flood your body with intravenous antibiotics for a day or two and then send you on your way with oral. The price tag or skyrocketed to 96000 bucks. The utilization rate went way down. But because the utilization rate went down, people became sicker. And it went into a far higher cost setting in a way that you should presume happens far more than just 486.1 bacterial pneumonia. That's what employers are measuring. And so as they measure that across larger employers, as they measure that delay in care, most many employers, by the way, I'll, I'll just, I can speak for all of our employer, Brown and Brown. They have a very loud intent to do what's right for their employees. And part of what's right is to help the employees become healthier, to take actions as the employer to help the employees become healthier. And that's a, that's a great stance for a company. And it's not, it's not unusual. I applaud our employer, Brown and Brown, but they're not the only ones that believe that. A lot of employers are like, yes, we want to help our employees become healthier. And then when you see data, that shows that your actions are actually doing the opposite and are making people sicker, that's a real kick in the teeth as a planned fiduciary. Certainly creates uh, some 
interesting dialogue, of course, for many of our listeners, if they're sitting in an HDHP world, again, understanding what your goals are, right? It's evident, Dave, that need to be assessed, but as well, what are the opportunity costs, right? And where do you want to take this from a strategic outlook perspective? That is extremely enlightening. Dave is wearing his finance hat. Again, we balance that with all of the priorities and goals of our, our client partners, but we appreciate your insight here, Dave. I know we've run a little over today, but good, good stuff indeed. Jared, Adam, any closing comments from the crew? No, I appreciate the input from David's Always fun conversations, Dave, and we never know where it's going to go. That's for dang sure. But it always brings new insight and hopefully gives people some things to think about out there and some different considerations. And that's what we try to do is help people think a little bit differently. Fantastic. Well, thanks for inviting me on. I hope I'd be delighted to come back and talk about more myths. I can well, speak I, until I'm blue. Ironically, we got version two coming up because we did hey, one of the we misconceptions. We'll get into round two and have some more fun. More fun ahead. Thanks, all. Take care, everyone.